this is a serious case, and I think, honestly, this MP should have asked for help. Where cases are tried does make a difference, and it's important that our, our membership knows this, that uh, county matters, court matters, the state matters. Try and get things in the best venue possible for you if you ever have to go to court. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry, the November 2017 issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you, Gregory. I see your uh, picture with your with your vest on. It's clearly getting fall where you live. Yeah, a touch of winter has come to Michigan, and these sorts of things happen. At least I can say we're not like Northern California, which is, as we record, is being burned into oblivion. I mean... I know they make great wine in California. Now they're going to have French fried wine, I think. Uh, my understanding is 12, 12 uh, wineries went under today. I mean, this is serious. This is serious stuff. Well, I, I know you think the wineries are important, but there are like uh, – 3,000 homes. It's like unbelievable. I think that this will be the worst fire ever to have occurred in uh, California. It's uh, absolutely terrible. And I tell you, uh, being here and, and watching the news, this kind of all crept up on us in a, in a matter of days. We, it went from nothing to this extraordinary uh, tragedy. So, uh, yeah, it's really bad that people's lives have been lost and there's a lot of people unaccounted for. It is a, it's really a mess here. And, you know, it, come to think of it, you know, good old President Trump said he's going to help us out kind of thing, even though we are a sanctuary state, which he probably hates the idea of. And we got para, para, marijuana growing here now, too, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. We've got all of course of, you're all a sanctuary state. Who <laughs> picks all those damn grapes? Give me a break here. All right. Well, uh, listen, as we start out, I want to I wanna start out with uh, something that we need to comment on. And that is, if you look at the uh, September 19th, uh, 2017 issue of JAMA. There's an interesting article entitled The United Kingdom Sets Limits on Experimental Treatments. This is the very sad case of Charlie Gard. Charlie Gard was that child in England who the parents who have a, who has a terrible disease, uh, incurable, the parents petitioned <laughs> the British Health Service to send the child to the United States for a therapy which has never been proven to work. And the Brits had the difficult position of saying straight out, and I applaud them for this. They said, no, if you want to gather your own funds and go there, we can't stop you. But as policy, the health, uh, the health service of the United Kingdom is not going to fund experimental therapy in some other country. And, you know, I think that that took a huge amount of courage on their part because, you know, there's always the news media that wants to tell you this sad story and show you a small kid. But the bottom line is we can't fix everybody. And uh, kudos to them for having the courage to take this on. Although, from another point of view, Greg, uh, this child had could not see, could not hear, could not speak, could not do anything, uh, had total loss of, of um, any of these critical functions, and it was determined that care was futile. 
And even in the United States, we recognize feudal care uh, and the ability, therefore, to um, not continue with care. And so uh, this is not like a kind of a person who has some kind of a cancer that needs some kind of uh, unique uh, bone marrow transfer uh, transplant or something like that. This was this kid was really, really off the bell-shaped curve in terms of um, all kinds of disabilities. And so I, I don't know that they're the same, but I understand your point that there must be some time to terminate uh, feudal care. Yes, exactly. And, and you heard all the news cameras commentators saying things like, well, it's just one child. It wouldn't cost that much. You let that kind of thinking go on and you, you wind up with us as your model in healthcare. And I, I think that, uh, I think we should pay attention to what the Brits did here because it was worthwhile. Hey, listen, you want to get started on some of our cases? We, we yes. have a we only yeah, we, have a little bit of stuff to cover this month. Yeah, I and, and I've got cases backing up here forever. <clears throat> but uh, now that we've uh, mentioned that British article, now that we've sent our best to the people in Northern California and hope things work out, let's get going. So give give us something to start with here, Rick. Well, this is a case from the uh, July issue of uh, ASAP Now written by uh, Jim Wilson. And by way of background, he points out that a lot of people living in western New Mexico often go to Texas to get their health care. Doctors are scarce in rural western New Mexico, and due to the malpractice um, changes that occurred in, in the reforms, there's tons of doctors went to Texas, and there's a big city nearby, Lubbock. So that's, they got lots of doctors and a lot of medical services. So here's the case. In 2004, Kimberly Montero went from New Mexico over to Lubbock for a gastric bypass. Some complications occurred during the follow-up period, and she sued Dr. Fraser, the surgeon. He was the chief of bariatric surgery at the Texas Tech Hospital in Lubbock, and he was the only bariatric surgeon listed, actually, on the Lovelace New Mexico Health Plan. So they even acknowledge you can go across the state for this, uh, this care. So what was the issue? The issue is, in what state did applicable law apply? Texas had all of this comprehensive laws, making it very hard to sue doctors. They had the willful and wanton standard, capsule and awards, and periodic payments. And in on New Mexico, they had a, you could enroll in an excess coverage plan, the patient compensation fund, if you were a New Mexico doctor. So the issue, where would applicable law apply? So it went back and forth between um the lower court to the higher court, and ultimately the New Mexico higher Supreme Court said, and this is interesting, the public interest is in maintaining access to cross-border medical services promoted by applying law where the services are rendered, but the ruling only applies in New Mexico, and it does not set a precedent here. So the services were rendered in Texas. That's where the law should apply with regard to this lady's lawsuit. They're, she's not, they're not applying New Mexico standards. They're applying Texas standards. So, yes, this is just between two states, but it may help set a precedent when people go between states and want to know where does applicable law apply. By the way, it's not just 
uh, state lines, it's county lines. If you're in the state of Illinois, you do anything you can to get your case tried in Cook County because the Democratic People's Republic of Cook County gives away money uh, like water. If you go to most of the other counties in in Illinois, they don't. Here in Michigan, people try and find some relationship between your health service uh, and the county of Wayne, where Detroit is. They even look to see if uh, the, the hospital is associated with a group of hospitals in that county so they can get it put into a different venue. Uh, where cases are tried does make a difference. And it's important that our, our membership knows this, that uh, county matters, court matters, the state matters. Um, try and get things in the best venue possible for you if you ever have to go to court. Well, the point that you're bringing up is that the juries in Wayne County are nasty. Uh, they like to give money. They like and, to give money, yes. Yeah, so that means, uh, yes. So you can envision some jury, places where juries are nasty and when they're where they may not be nasty, like where you live in University of Michigan, where there's all of these, uh, you know, liberals up there. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, all these know. pinhead liberals. Yeah, you don't want to be there either. You want some county where people actually work for a living, farmers, people like that. But uh, uh, the New Mexico case is, uh, is a precedent-setting case, and I was happy to see it uh, finally adjudicated. All right, should we move on to something else here? Yeah, take it. All right, here's a question about a case from uh, uh, Chris uh, Lusher. Uh, a patient presents in the evening to a primary care doctor who works in a large multi-specialty group. The patient has had a procedure the day before by a specialist in the same group and was worried, patient was worried about some symptoms. The PCP calls on, uh, calls the cardiologist uh, and the fellow on first call responds and gives some advice. Basically, we'll see him in the morning. The PCP feels that this is reasonable since the specialist has dealt with similar issues much more in the past and relies on this information, so informs the patient who was sent home. The patient dies overnight. God, don't you hate that when that happens, Ricky? And the family sues. The question Chris is asking, the insurance company for the multi-specialty group hires a single defense lawyer to represent both doctors. Even though both doctors are named individually in the suit, as well as uh, and are insured under separate policies within this multi-specialty group. Does this sound okay? What do you think, Rick? Well, if I was the uh, group, I would say, yeah, this is okay. The idea here is to spend as little money uh, in this settlement as possible and not have finger pointing between the uh, two doctors and this is just business, and it's not a matter of, as Greg Henry would say, it's not about honor, it's about business. And so the way to do this from a point of view of getting the best settlement is to combine these two, make the best case you can that the care was reasonable rather than pitting these two doctors against each other. I would point out, however, that uh, it is the smart adjuster 
who speaks to both parties, both the doctors, and make sure they're not going to turn on each other and that they're perfectly in line with what they're going to say. If you as Dr. A are perfectly willing to go down with this ship, fine. If you think somebody's going to stab you in the back, it's, it's okay to request separate counsel. One thing for sure is your doctor number is going to have something in the uh, practitioner's data bank. If you want it clean, if you want it pure, just understand that you may have to protect and defend your name and honor. We've combined cases many, many times, and it's worked out just fine. But uh, you're crazy as a uh, an adjuster. If these two don't like each other or they're going to blame each other, uh, make sure that there's uh, proper uh, separate representation. By the way, he lets us know that this case settled and 100% of the payment uh, was assessed against the specialist. Now, I, I hope they didn't say anything rude to each other at the end of the case, but it seems like uh, the one doc did fine and the specialist who gave the advice to send the patient home took it on the chin. This is uh, also from Chris. It's a different issue. He said, catch this, I don't know. I've heard it said a few times now, on our audios, whether it be uh, EMA or the like, not, he wasn't sure where he heard it, that fear of malpractice does not lead to over-testing and over-treating. And I said, say what? <laughs> 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 so he points out the Texas malpractice legislation is frequently cited as not being having reduced medical costs. And therefore, even the doctors there st still continue to fear malpractice, even though you have to be an absolute uh, felon to kill to get to get to lose there. Well, let me jump in here for one second, Rick, because they continue to test. Uh, maybe they have fear. Maybe if they don't have fear, but they've gotten into habits over the last fifty years, which are going to take a long time to break. And you're right. Uh, they've all gotten used to ordering two CT scans because one is too small and two fills out the chart better. They've gotten used to filling it up full of blood and urine and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure that it's just fear of lawsuit. I think some of this is bad habits, which we put into them in medical schools. Uh, you know, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. And just because you say it's tougher to sue doesn't mean people are going to change all of their ordering habits. Well, I agree. I think uh, there are multiple components to that. And I think there is this inertia. This is the way I was taught. This is the way we do it. This is called good medicine. Uh, that kind of dribble. Uh, despite the fact that there is evidence that maybe you should not do two CT scans and maybe you ought not do a CT scan, but rather an ultrasound. But yes, there's, I think that a lot of it is based on our routine practice, but a lot of that routine practice was built on fear, fear five years ago, 10 years ago, that, it, that has been there and ingrained into the profession. So I think that it's a combination, but I agree getting it, to change is virtually impossible. 
Yeah, I was told as a kid that monsters live under my bed, and by God, I still check to this day to make sure there's no monster going to get my feet. All right, uh, here's a Horty Springer question. Thanks to uh, Mike Ritter for giving us a heads up. Can credentials and peer review information be shared with a sister hospital that has the same board of directors, but each has its own separate medical staff? The answer, uh, the short answer, let's do the short answer first, is yes. But here's what is recommended, that the doctors are, are informed. They know what they're going uh, to be put, put through. They know that various, a board of directors may look at a group of hospitals under their control. So just understand, it's not just the hospital you're going to, it is the control entity. And here's why. Because the board of directors whether they have one hospital or 20 hospital, has to take liability, has to take the responsibility for all those other hospitals. So they are going to talk. They are going to ship this stuff. As long as it's done in the proper manner, protected, stays within that group, I think you should expect that all peer review information will be shared with anybody who has joint responsibility for the care of those patients. Yeah, absolutely. The idea here is that this system <clears throat> wants to make sure that it credentials doctors who don't have any kind of significant black marks on the record. And therefore the sharing of this information is in the interest of the system. And uh, that's kind of the precedent here. And it, it makes a lot of sense. I initially thought, well, you know, each medical staff has the prerogative of reviewing the credentials of an individual physician, and each medical staff can say yes or no. But this basically says it's not the medical staff's prerogative. It's the, it's the board of directors who ultimately get the a credential of physician yes or no. It's not the medical staff. It's the board of directors. So I think it makes a lot of sense. There is something called non-delegatable duty that rests with the board of directors. That is, I don't care who they hire to look at quality assurance, this or that, they can't shove the responsibility off on anyone else. They can get help from someone, but there is no way they can just say, well, I didn't know, you know, it wasn't my fault. The answer is, yes, it is your fault. And if there's something going on, uh, you ought to know about it. And for those of you who um, live naively, there are bad things that are happening in certain doctors. And I don't just mean bad practice. I mean uh, drug use. I mean uh, other uh, criminal or near criminal activities. The uh, board of directors has a responsibility to protect and defend the patients. And I, th I think that it's a good idea that if there's questionable practice, they do share it within the organization. Although you know that uh, there's just a huge amount of time and money wasted in credentialing doctors <laughs> for each individual hospital they want to work at. Uh, you, even if you have a pristine record at the hospital down the street, that's not good enough. If you're at a different hospital, they go through the whole thing to determine whether you went to medical school, you know, where your internship was, did you have any black marks back in the, and, you know, I remember in the old days, 
you can get temporary privileges and bring an ER doctor on in a nanosecond. No such thing anymore, man. <laughs> it's, 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 it's months to get privileges at a hospital. Yeah, you uh, you and I remember when they you went down to the administrator's office and they <laughs> signed a piece of paper which gave you 90 days practice uh, before the hospital had to even act on your membership in the hospital. I would actually start working, meet the administrator that day, and start working that night. <laughs> and and uh, that kind of stuff is gone by the board, I think, Rick. Uh, listen, we're getting taken to the woodshed here, Chief. A subscriber didn't like the idea that we uh, appeared to have prematurely uh, commented on uh, the Banhoff case, which we did in September by way of review. This was a 13-year-old uh, girl who died of a brainstem herniation. In essence, the child had uh, multiple visits for headaches, finally went to an ER, deteriorated, and never did get an MRI. And all of that's via a story in the local newspaper. Our listener says that all of our information came from that newspaper article. And he thought that the plaintiff's attorney had some influence in the writing of that article. He says we really heard just one side of the story and discovery is still taking place. And he criticizes our premature criticism of the doctor's behavior. He says the local doctors feel terrible about the case and they need their day in court. Well, uh, Mia Copa, Mia Maxima Copa, um, and for those of you who don't understand that, uh, you've probably never had your hand slapped by a nun, but we're sorry. Uh, that is right. We did have one <clears throat> side of this. We don't have all the facts. Uh, the criticism is genuine and heartfelt, and Rick and I will take back anything mean uh, we said until all the information is in. So thank you, somebody, for, uh, we will not use his name. We will thank you for keeping us honest. And, you know, um, maybe we should have, maybe we're going to think about this in the future, Rick. We got to be, the, we're kinder and gentler now than we used to be. Although there is a naivete, perhaps, that uh, articles written in newspapers are uh, well balanced and that and and factual. So I don't think we need to beat ourselves up too much here. It would be interesting to know the outcome of this case, and it would be great to follow it if we uh, are given the opportunity. Listen, we're moving on to another one of our listeners. Uh, we have the greatest listeners in the world. Uh, we're going to borrow a case from one of our colleagues, and that's Chuck Pilcher who publishes a free internet newsletter. We got to talk to him, Rick. I mean, he's he's putting us out of business here. A free newsletter? Chuck, what's the matter with you, guy? Entitled Medical Malpractice, Malpractice Insights. And uh, you can check out this publication and sign up for it. And after all, it's free. It's pretty good. And anyway, Chuck talks about a case invol- involving a woman who goes to the ED four days after delivering a child via vaginal birth. Uh, She is seen by an NP. The record indicates a fever of 101.8. Now, I don't care what the rest of this thing says. If you're four days having delivered in the hospital and now you're feeling bad and you're running a fever and you have back and chills and nausea, 
and abdominal pain. Um, the CBC done shows a lower platelet count. Okay, is that 100% definitive? No, but if we take everything else we've got, this doesn't look good. The patient's OB is not called. I don't know why not. And the patient is discharged having had a UTI. Now, in truth, uh, a lot of women who deliver will have white cells in their urine for the next week. That That's normal. Why do we think that a few white cells in the urine are going to cause this woman misery? I have no idea. 15 hours later, she returns with full-blown sepsis. An emergency hysterectomy is done. Uh, and surgeon notes endometritis, and the patient dies on the second hospital day. Again, not a good outcome. A lawsuit's filed against the ED group. The defense is the patient really had necrotizing fasciitis, not just endometritis, and sepsis, and and no matter what uh, would have been done, there was nothing that could have saved her earlier. Well, let me just say the jury didn't buy that. And $20.8 million later, an amount which is being appealed, uh, the jury was not impressed with this argument. They were not impressed that the patient with a fever in four days was sent home. Uh, I think, you know, we know what Chuck's feelings are on this. And uh, I think... Rick, you and I kind of agree with them. Early postpartum abdominal pain and fever should raise all kinds of red flags. Um, a UA consistent with a UTI really has nothing to do with my, what else may be going on. It does not exclude other serious causes. And if it was a UTI, the more correct diagnosis would be pyelonephritis, uh, which would warrant calling the OB serious antibiotics and admission. Um, there should be some threshold at which PAs and NPs ask for a physician input into this, uh, into the case. There was a doctor there. The ER docs are getting sued as a part of this. We're sued as a part of this. Rick, what are your thoughts? Well, to be fair, uh, Chuck did not put in the last bullet. Uh, I specifically said that these are Chuck's points and ours with regard to takeaway. Because this is a delicate point. Should there be a threshold for a PA or NP to ask for help? And um, I think in it's obviously easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. But this lady, as soon as a lady comes in with a 101.8 fever who delivered a couple of days ago, this is a serious case. And um, I think, honestly, uh, this NP should have asked for help whether uh, they have their own threshold for asking for help, or there's a policy in the department that says fever in a recently delivered it automatically involves a physician. Now, you don't want to be, yeah, you have to be careful about writing policies like that or that are very specific because as soon as you do that, and there's going to be a, some other patient who comes in who doesn't meet the criteria, who also should have been seen by a physician. I think that... Um, you know, Greg, there is this movement for independent practice of nurse practitioners and um, I th- and PAs, I th- by the way. Uh, let, yeah. let me just say this. There are some general rules of life. 
if they'd had a surgical procedure, uh, you know, where there's blood and all that sort of thing, you would call the surgeon if his patient came in four days later. Common well, courtesy. Common, common courtesy. Cur common courtesy. And, you know, three, four days later, remember, a delivery, in case you haven't done one for a while, is full of blood and poop and urine and everything else. Uh, it's just as likely to cause some kind of an infection. Uh, we don't have listed whether there was a uh, an examination of the uterus done. We don't have a couple of other things here which would be helpful in talking about this case. But I just think as a general rule, if you've had a surgical manipulation procedure, whatever it is, and you come in a couple of days later, deliveries included in that group, call the doc who did the did the delivery and at least carry on some discussion about what they want to do. No argument, no argument. $20.8 million. <laughs> yes, exactly. Obviously, the jury was not happy with story number two. So what do you got, Rick? Uh, we're going to borrow another case. Bill Sullivan, <clears throat> who's one of the uh, senior editors for EP Monthly. This was uh, in the August issue. So a two-year-old goes to the uh, emergency department because he couldn't straighten out in his leg without crying a lot. Uh, X-rays were read by a teleradiologist as being normal, and the child was discharged. There was an overread the next day, noted a femur fracture, and the attending was contacted in the EDAR, ED and, uh, and advised of the finding. Can you envision this, Greg? I mean, I, I've been there myself. You get a call, and you know that patient that had a fracture yesterday? Right, and you're, right. And you're, seeing, uh, and you're like seeing 18 patients in various stages? Uh, did you ever think of forgetting that? Well, in any case, this doctor did forget that. The attending didn't call the family uh, regarding the fracture. Uh, the child was brought back three weeks later with a seizure and altered mental status. Skull fracture was diagnosed and intracranial bleeding uh, had occurred. The father admitted throwing the child to the floor in frustration when the child would not stop crying. Well, you know, this is really very circular. The child would not stop crying because it had a broken leg for crying out loud. Right, exactly. Uh, don't get me going on this case, Rick, because you, uh, you know, where's the mother in this thing? I know she loves the husband so much. <clears throat> Women are stupid and men are beasts and brutal pieces of crap. And when I think of the times I've seen this in the department. I, I mean, I'm glad I'm sitting down. I'm glad I don't have a hammer in my hand because I'd start hitting things. Okay, you got a two-year-old. Let's say the x-ray is negative. There's still something <coughs> causing pain when you're moving on this kid's hip. Why don't you assume that this is an, a fracture we don't see? And the last time I was in a hospital, a two-year-old, with a long bone injury, at least child abuse has to cross your mind. You know, I, I was even involved in turning in one of the senior residents in surgery when his kid came in with a broken leg. And I went to him and I said, look, you know, we don't believe this with this and that, but I got to do it. And he said, Greg, I wouldn't think you would do anything else. He says, you're right. Your first obligation is protection of the child. And uh, 
just because the first x-ray doesn't show a fracture. The other thing is, when somebody calls, says, you know, that kid was here last night, he's got a femur fracture. To me, that's kind of a medical emergency. I mean, don't you have to call the family, send the police out to the home if they don't answer, call their family doctor? I mean, to me, femur fractures, I didn't diagnose that many of them in kids during my time in the ER. That's a big deal, Rick. I really think it is. Well, I honestly can um, remember cases where I got called by the radiologist and uh, I was just so busy that, uh, that, you know, maybe an hour later, it's like, oh, geez, I forgot all about that case. Right. And, and something in the back of your brain just kind of turns it on. But you can easily admit, uh, envision you're so involved with the cases that you're seeing right then and there. You're, there. There may be some patients that are going sour. And this thing just gets put way into the back of your brain. This incident occurred in 2005. In 2008, the father was sentenced to eight years in jail. Several years later, the ED group was say, uh, sued for failing to recognize the fracture and failing to report an injury suspicious of child abuse. After only six hours of deliberation, the jury awarded $45 million, including $15 million against the physician who never followed up on the report and $2 million against the physician who sent the child home in the first place. No liability was apportioned to the radiologist who missed the fracture. All right. I, I, now, if you thought I was going crazy before... If that son of a bitch who broke that kid's leg got a nickel or a dime of the $45 million, this is the kind of thing I buy major heavy league artillery for. <laughs> and when the revolution comes, I'm going to find him. You should not profit from having killed a kid. That's just not right. You know, OJ uh, could not get certain monies for writing books, his tell-alls and stuff like that, Ron Goldman's parents had already brought action so that all of that money <clears throat> was going to go back to them and not to OJ. They did not want to see him reported for having killed their kid. Um, uh, again, I need to take a drink of water now, Rick. Because, calm down there. Calm down. Because I, I had this. I had this. Uh, when I was young in my career, and finally Michigan has some statutes which do not let you profit from committing a felony. But uh, we actually had that. The guy got out in a year and a half. He goes back with the mother. The mother and the chump sue the emergency doctors for missing the fact that he was a goddamn felon. Now, um, Calm down. Uh, listen, 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 yeah. listen. listen. <laughs> I, take, a, I take a breath. Yeah, you're, you're, I don't want to get too crazy about this, but you know what? Uh, the country does suck on this aspect. And uh, again, I want to know if that guy got any of this 45 million bucks because that'd be just wrong. You know, God should punish him. Okay, I feel better you now. Know, <laughs> listen. I'm, I'm looking at Greg on the uh, Skype line. His face has just gotten like a freaking beat. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see the blood pressure in the, yeah. and the, the perfusion going on in the <clears throat> cerebral cortex. 
Hey, listen, what were Bill's take-home points well, here? Well, Bill, Bill had some take-home points, and uh, Bill's a wonderful friend, and, and we like him. And, you know, thanks for including uh, a case that raised my blood pressure and gave me a cerebral <laughs> aneurysm. But he says, you are obligated in every state in the United States to report suspicion of child abuse, and all states are set up. That if you, in good faith, report suspicion, they cannot come back and sue you. Every single state. You can't go after a doc. You can't go after a teacher. You can't go after a social worker if they report suspicion of uh, child abuse. And, um, you know, that's that's just fine. Did Some you see states- this? Yeah. Did you see this where that some states have monetary penalties if you don't report I didn't know that. State of Michigan, you can, you can it's a uh, uh, punishable up for, to 90 days in jail to not report obvious malpractice. 90 days in jail. I'd rather pay a fine than go to jail for 90 days. Um, you know, what can I say? Uh, but some states, they do have some significant criminal penalties in any in any event. Well, wait a minute. Catch this. Yeah. This is they have pe- penalties for false reporting. Because have, have you seen this thing right. where the, uh, the child is taken by a parent? The parents are in a bitter divorce kind of thing. The parents, uh, one child, the child is with the parents over the weekend. Soon right. as the kid goes back to the other parent, they take him to the emergency department, claiming that the parent over the weekend was mean to them and slapped them and did bad things to them. Or sexually molested them. I've had all of those. Every person who practices has seen the child used as a tool, but I will uh, in, in these divorce issues. So do your exam. If there's reasonable, uh, if, if there's stuff that you have to report, <clears throat> report it. But I've never seen a physician successfully punished for over-reporting. If it's good faith, they they will make it through. You know, false reporting is different. But the physician, if they're calling it down the line, and, and I'd like to hear from any of our listeners if an emergency doc has ever done it in good faith and gotten into trouble. Because I don't believe it exists. No, I would agree. He also points out the uh, abuse-prone injuries. Yes. Uh, bruises not over uh, bony prominences. Bruises and patterns. Injuries inconsistent with the caretaker's story or inconsistent with the child's age. That's the key that rolls off the changing table. Right. Uh, rib fractures. Those are the most common uh, fractures associated with abuse, uh, fractures of different ages and retinal hemorrhages. You've never seen a one-year-old's retinal, retina period, no less to see retinal hemorrhages for crying oh, no, out I've loud. Se- I've seen Get out of here. Yeah, you, absolutely. You, you've made it up. How can you see a kid's eye? Rick, Go. there's a chemical we can put in there. And when you dilate the eye, you can see retinal hemorrhages. And, but... Of course, that requires that somebody would do the radical step of examining a a kid. But in any event, uh, I, I, I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> All right. Last thing is uh, this case was filed in 2005. 
and the jury award occurred in 2017, the 12-year period of time suggesting that you have to be very, very careful regarding the statute of limitations in uh, cases involving children. Well, the child would not have been a of majority age uh, if it happened in 2005 uh, until they were like, um, you know, 17, 18 years of age. Yes, when things happen to children, there's a long reporting time in there. And uh, yeah, you do have to pay attention. So he also says, make sure your tail insurance is nice and long as well. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I gave a uh, talk to senior residents um, of the Michigan Emmer program, and I asked them about tail coverage. And there were two people in the room who even knew what a tail was. Uh, and it's, it's not taught very well, I think, in our training programs. I think we have an email that fell through the cracks. Um, given we can't give too many of the details in this case uh, to protect the uh, parties, I do think it's an important uh, that we go through this. We may. I think that we contacted this person and gave them our response very quickly, but I don't think we ever covered it in, in one of the issues. No, we did not. So an ambulance advises the ED that a gunshot wound patient is on the way. The doctor gets on the line and tells the driver to head to another hospital. The ED director is of the view that the ED did have what was necessary to care for the gunshot wound and is wondering whether their hospital committed an EMTALA violation and whether they ought to turn themselves in. And as always, Bob Bitterman came to the rescue on this one and gave a short answer no, you don't need to turn yourself in, and a long answer. And the long answer is actually quite interesting. Uh, he said, you're under no legal obligation for a hospital to report its own violation of the statute to CMS or the designated state agency. You know, I, I didn't know that. I thought, I thought you did have to return yourself in, that uh, you had to be your own whistleblower. So, well, you know, uh, St. Bob says, uh, says no. And um, I tend to I tend to th listen to Bob pretty carefully when he talks on these issues. I think he's pretty good. Well, this is a serious, serious matter. Here's the long answer. There are two components that must be satisfied to violate EMTALA. There must be a request for an examination or treatment. In this case, it was made by the medics on behalf of the patient. That's yeah. kind of interesting interpretation. But secondly... Uh, the second component was not met. The patient must come to the emergency department. If the ambulance was not on, was not owned by the hospital or was not on hospital property, the second element was not met. They did not come to the emergency department. Right. Yep. And, and every day in this country, Rick, uh, ambulances have to make decisions where they're going to take patients. I'm in a, I'm in a County in an area where, uh, kids from trauma go to one hospital. That's it. And, and so if we got a call, um, if there was a new, a new driver or a new tech who wanted to call and say, we're only two miles away, I'd say you're only 12 miles away from the University of Michigan Children's Hospital where they have trauma surgeons for kids. Uh, in, I think that there's got to be some common sense here. And obviously, this emergency doctor did not believe they did have the backup. Uh, 
what was not mentioned in this article is these are decisions which should have been made in advance. This is what we take. This is what we don't take. If they've got a penetrating eye injury, most hospitals can't handle that. Not even in L.A. can most of them handle that. There's a few places that can do it. Most cannot. He points out that it's not so black and white, however. The, the Ninth and First Circuit Courts, which are noted to be the most liberal, have found that a call from a medic constitutes coming to the ED for the purposes of Mtala, which is really a stretch, but, you know, that's, that's their opinion. And there's seven other uh, circuits which have not made that decision. You know, what I always thought was interesting is the circuits can make decisions on, like, taxes. In some circuits, they allowed residents to deduct what they got paid as residents as an educational stipend and had a different tax rate on it than it did in two other circuits. Uh, how does that make any sense in a tax system which is national? I have I have no idea, but this kind of craziness goes on all the time. How about a little bit more about self-reporting? Uh, it doesn't get you any pat on the head or lessen the risk of penalties. I didn't know that, you know. Um, yeah. As of last year, Bob notes that if a hospital was in violation and fixed a problem, and then turned itself in before CMS found out this would count as mitigation of the problem. So you have to know you made a mistake. You have to fix the mistake and before the, the CMS even uh, uh, starts talking to you, and that would mitigate. Little nuances here, gentlemen. Yep. Uh, Bob, Bob recommends. Yeah, you want to do that part? Yeah, Bob recommends that a hospital self-report only if it is absolutely positive that someone else was going to report the hospital anyway. Uh, and then fix the problem. Uh, best thing to do is fix the problem and don't report. It's never advantageous to have a bunch of sur surveyors crawling over your hospital because remember, when they're there, they can go back years to decide what's going on. Right, and they don't have to limit themselves to just the uh, matter at hand. They can start looking in all kinds of filing cabinets and doing all kinds of nastiness. Absolutely. So you and, don't want them on the property. <laughs> yeah, essentially, uh, we just don't want them there, and, and uh, I, would, I would keep that in mind. All right, uh, Listen, Rick. You have a couple I, of cases, I think, there, my well, I friend. Got, I got more than that. I've got great stuff. I got a case which uh, is worth commenting on because it has to do with it has to do with malpractice, but it also has to do. It's not an emergency medicine case, um, but it has to do with in determining when a patient knew or should have known a potential malpractice action and trigger something. This was actually a case in which a, a Michigan uh, appellate court case in which somebody had was they thought they were waiting too long for the call button to be answered, uh, not in the ER, but up on the floor. The uh, patient then got up, injured themselves. So they brought an action 
not just common negligence, but they brought an action for malpractice against the hospital. The first court that heard the, the story said, wait a minute, if you're going to make this malpractice, you've got to have all the right stuff. You've got to have filed within a certain time frame. You have to have experts who say this and that. Sorry, you don't meet the standard. They appealed this to the Michigan Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals supported this, and this was their decision. They said hospitals are unique. To say that answering a, a, a bell or uh, a call for help, something like that, is just usual and customary is not right. It would depend on what the staffing was, what was going out, what else was going on, blah, 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 blah. And they said, if you're going to bring a, a malpractice action, it has to be done like any malpractice case. Experts, uh, literature, uh, all the usual stuff we'd expect. You just can't uh, scream, oh my God, I've been injured and uh, get money. You're go- you can't do it on a common negligence basis. It has to be done uh, within the rules of malpractice. And this is actually a very good decision. Uh, for, and of course, it's, a, it's an appellate court decision, so it is quotable and can be used by other states. Uh, what we do is unique. And if they say in the emergency department, well, grandma got up and fell because you didn't answer the bell. Well, maybe we had four resuscitations going on. And so you're going to have to do it right. You're going to have to prove malpractice. I like this. This is this is a good this is a good decision for doctors. Well, isn't this a little bit like a uh, kind of like a slip and fall and a slip and fall isn't, you know, malpractice. You don't need the uh, uh, experts in a slip and fall, do you? Uh, you don't need them in a slip and fall in which it didn't have to do with response. You can talk about, oh, there was something on the floor, a banana peel, or this or that. That's not what was being alleged in this case. They said that the hospital did not have adequate staffing, did not have this, did not have that. If you're going to go that route, uh, which isn't slip and fall, then you're going to have to show it as a form of malpractice. And that makes, that makes the, the, the step a higher step. It makes it a tougher standard to meet. <laughs> Have you ever seen a banana on the floor in your entire life? A banana peel? Uh, a banana peel. Um, I, I'm sure my kid has picked up, <laughs> picked it up one time and ate in it or something, but, but, uh, you're right. I have not personally seen that, but, uh, that's the kind of case that law schools quote all the time. All right. <clears throat> what do you have for us? Anything, uh, in the uh, pile there? I'm yes. looking at I'm looking at his desk. You, you know, is it look like a freaking fire hazard? Yeah, I I understand that. Uh, we've got another letter. Uh, this is also from Chris, and I think uh, uh, we've already done one of his letters. But uh, this was one that just came in, and I love it. Patient came in yesterday to our urgent care. Central registration called urgent care to notify them the patient was pa- a patient was passed out in a car outside. 
Staff ran outside to find patient unresponsive. Narcan times three given. Well, there's his first mistake. You only give enough Narcan so they take a breath. You don't want to wake them up. Although, you, come on now. You got to acknowledge that the, this fentanyl stuff, taking like quarts and quarts of Narcan. Well, but you, you give it till you see them take their first breath. Because I've never liked anybody I woke up with Narcan. It never happened in my entire life. So they gave him three hits of Narcan. The patient wakes up. Patient dis- declines transfer to the hospital and says, I'm here to bring my son, a teenager, for an appointment, a medical appointment. This indeed was the case. What Chris is asking is, I don't know what the medical legal discussion uh exactly what we should have done. Are we liable? Are we this or are we that? Uh, Chris, uh, you know, get a grip here, guy. Can you be liable? Yes, but it depends on how you do it. First off, if they have now come back to normal consciousness, you carry on reasonable conversation, you letting them not shoot up again and do whatever you can to delay the time to make sure they're not going to go back into stupor or coma. You can't make the patient do anything, but you have a perfect right to inform them, the family, whatever it is that you're, that you're concerned, and you should inform that patient. We don't think you should go till you've been rechecked out, but uh, if you've done all those things and at the time of leaving, the patient is awake, alert, understands the nature and object of what's going on, um, they're probably right. They probably can leave. Although I think that you have uh, an issue popping up here of potential danger uh, to others, unknown third parties. Uh, should this person relapse while they were driving home? Uh, this is a, a very difficult situation. Uh, don't know exactly uh, know how to protect the population without suggesting to the local gendarme that they might want to keep an eye on this person. But then again, that's, you know, do you have a relationship with this patient? Is this a, uh, a, a, uh, are you, uh, obligated with all of the things between a doctor and a patient now because you found this guy in this park in the car in the parking lot he didn't ask you to take care of him for crying out loud no he didn't rick but that somebody will impose a duty on this that's why i said my my usual technique was to delay 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 because most people (laughs) who are going to go that's why I'm not into huge doses of Narcan. If they're going to go back under, my experience was within 10 minutes or so, the Narcan had worn off, particularly when I gave small amounts. Now they're down. Now I can do what I want with them because they're not awake, alert, and talking. Um, But don't think for a second that somebody won't raise the issue if they drove off that uh, you, and and let's say killed a kid in, uh, with their car, that you weren't uh, a part of this. Um, sometimes you have to make decisions here. And that's why small amounts of Narcan, let them go under again and uh, transfer them to the hospital. In addition, when you're talking to this person and warning them about uh, potential 
if they don't uh, stick around. Uh, the idea of having a witness so that they can say, yes, Dr. Henry did say all of these things. Otherwise, it's your word against theirs. As I would uh, recommend that. And uh, I think otherwise, you're, you're up to crick here a bit. Yeah. Oh, no. I, anybody who thinks that our job is simple or there's one right answer, I don't think that's correct. We got another letter here, Rick. Uh, this is a guy who's been with us for quite some time. Uh, he goes to the courses. He was at uh, he was at Key West, and he. Uh, by the way, does Key West still exist? Actually, the hotel uh, is opening again. I think it's October nineteenth. They basically say we're in good shape, and uh, so. As a matter of fact, I think it's a great idea that you mentioned that because some people are going to be concerned that there's uh, nothing there. Uh, this hotel uh, is taking customers as of uh, the 19th, I believe. Yeah, well, very good. I, you know, maybe on the next issue, we're going to have to talk about the state of all of our locations because Orlando uh, had some some uh, hurricane damage, but I, I think that they're basically just fine, aren't they? Or, Orlando is fine. My brother and uh, eight of his buddies went golfing there. Uh, it's, it's just fine. Paradise Island, uh, in the Bahamas, they're fine. You know, mm-hmm. so we, we've really kind of lucked out. Plus they've got months now before these courses come on that they can clean up the place. Uh, this is their busiest times of year. This is when they make their money. They're going to be ready. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get back to this letter. I'm a PA working as a solo provider in a rural hospital for 30 years. Wow. I've been a long time subscriber, attended uh, the Key West Conference for many years. Your advice has kept me out of trouble on multiple occasions. I want to tell you about a recent case, an 84-year-old woman who came in with belly pain and vomiting. She has had very mild dementia and really wasn't a good historian. On exam, she had significant tenderness in the left lower quadrant. She was happy to lead me down the garden path, and I was thinking about diverticulitis at the top of my differential. Then I thought, WWAD, that stands for what would Amal do? Now, wait a second, Rick. Amal. Does that mean mean you and I are like chopped liver? Amal. It's it's, got to be your heart or nothing with Amal. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be. Oh, no, I shouldn't take that. He is interested in geriatrics as well. Okay. All right. So I ordered an EKG. If I used my imagination, there might have been a 0.5 millimeter elevation in two and AVF. I repeated it in 15 minutes. And of course, now she had ST elevations in two and three and F with reciprocal changes in AVL. She got thrombolytics and did well. Uh, so he says to us, thanks again for saving my butt. Tell Amal thanks too. you guys are terrific. So it's nice that we get this kind of letter occasionally. Greg, would you order an EKG in some 84-year-old with left lower quadrant abdominal pain? I mean, come on. This is a little bit of a stretch. I, I, I know that. And uh, I sent Amal, uh, because he'd been sent this letter, I sent him an email and said, you and I have been helping people out for 10 years. Nobody says crap about us. He mentions one thing on <laughs> one of our shows, and now he's he he's a savior of mankind. I mean, 
Like, there's no win in here, Rick. There's just no, no, no win no, at no. all. Uh, Rick, I'm going to do a couple of cases now, which I don't know what to say about because the science and what's happening have nothing to do with each other. I think you would agree with me that there is no published literature that says we can suck out clots from the posterior fossa. Is that fair? Yes, the the, the Mr. Clean trial uh, talked about the carotid and the middle cerebral artery. We don't have a machine small enough to get into anything else. The other thing is there is no paper published that says that strokes in the posterior fossa are benefited. There's a change in outcome um, uh, if if we give them TPA. Uh, The two studies which are positive, ECAS-3 and the NINS trial, were, were limited to people with sided lesions, which are anterior circulation. There is no posterior uh, study. Unfortunately, it seems that no one is paying attention to this crap. And that, that as I've watched over the last 20, 30 years cases, stroke cases are coming up more often. People do believe there's a magic medicine. And I think emergency doctors are between a rock and a hard place here. That uh, we really have to pay some attention to what's going on. Here we go with, uh, let me get get one quickly. Uh, Failure to provide proper care to possible stroke patient. Death, $9.2 million Georgia verdict. The plaintiff's decedent was a 41-year-old man uh, who exhibited stroke-like symptoms at home. The patient was driven to to the hospital, the emergency room. By the time they arrived, the symptoms had subsided. What do we call that, Rick? Last I heard it was a TIA. Exactly. The decedent was admitted for tests. The ER doctor didn't kick him out. He didn't give him bum's rush. He admitted him for tests and observation by the defendant. The next morning, the decedent complained of weakness on his side, uh, uh, to his left side, and and uh, this was passed on to the patient's internist. Three hours later, the decedent began having trouble with speech and was given imaging studies, which revealed a stroke. The decedent died five days later. Plaintiff alleged that the doctor attending to this uh, problem failed to diagnose and care for him properly. I want to ask you a question. You've read this literature. You know this literature like Hoffman knows this literature. Tell me what they should have done in the ER with somebody who is resolved besides admit him if that's what you want to do. What should he have done at that moment in time? Well, I, I, I don't know. Maybe somebody knows, but I sure don't. I don't think that's really kind of in the realm of, you know, the uh, database of emergency medicine, frankly. Uh, these, are, these are mysteries. Well, and what they said was the plaintiff claimed, in his closing argument, claimed that a neurological consult should have been called when the decedent presented to the ER in order to avoid a stroke. I again want to know, 
what this neurologic consult was going to do that you and I don't know about. I want to, I want to know what it is because I don't think it exists. And, so, uh, but anyway, this, this was a case that, uh, the, the jury did not, uh, did not debate this very long and came back with a $9.2 million award for, because he called in an internist who admitted the patient and did not call in a neurologist. You know, uh, that's kind of discouraging. Oh my God. <clears throat> I think that's awful. I, I think we're delusional. It would be great to see what the arguments were specifically to the jury that would have resulted in that award. I mean, this is a case of probably good lawyering, and I'd love to know who the quote unquote experts were. Well, all I can tell you, I, I don't have their, their uh, experts' names right here, but it is amazing to me how much trial is a show and that science has almost nothing to do with it. Let's do, let's do another one that's in our wheelhouse. Failure to timely diagnose Caudi Aquinas syndrome. And this one is, a, is an ugly verdict. The plaintiff, a 19-year-old woman, presented to the ER with complaints of severe back pain. The nurse noted plaintiff had numbness in her pelvic region. That's a pretty important finding. She was examined by a nurse practitioner and prescribed pain relievers. She was discharged with instructions to undergo a scheduled MRI. Now, I'm, I'm going to make the case here in a second that the fact that they scheduled an MR, a regular MRI into the future was proof of the malpractice. Because if the reason is you ordered an MRI because you have numbness and you think the spinal cord is being compressed, isn't that a medical emergency? Is yeah, that it a is yes a, or no question? It is a medical emergency, but I, I think it's the other way around. I think that... Uh, this MRI was a fishing expedition uh, written up by somebody who really did not know what the emergency diagnosis could be. So I think that that's why it's not urgent, uh, because well, they don't know what the heck it is that they're looking for. Well, two days later, the plaintiff underwent an MRI, which revealed a large protruding disc and, and bladder distension. And by the time they did the surgery... The, the patient was left with uh, numbness, difficulty walking, problems with the bladder. You know, folks, if you believe that they're pushing on your spinal cord, I, I don't think you wait around to get the study. And that's what that's essentially what was said in this case. But and the def the defendants people here were perfectly good people. I know the 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 uh, expert for the. Uh, defense uh and uh they were they were squished for 2.5 million bucks the clinician here i believe was not aware that what they were looking for was in fact an emergent condition and they were fishing uh that's why um you know i also believe that the mri machine needs to be viewed as something that could be reasonably ordered by an emergency clinician at any frickin' time that they need it. When the spine is involved, you can get one at 8 o'clock at night if you need to. Uh, nobody's going to have any sympathy because you didn't want to call in the tech to do an a MRI. 
MRIs are the uh, are the the uh, imaging of choice for suspected scaphoids that don't show up on plain X-rays. They're, they should be used more in back, more more in knee. You know, I think that they're substantially underused. They're going to be used more in pregnant women who have belly pain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is not some kind of rare machine that is only used between nine and five for routine scheduled cases. Yeah. By the way, do you feel better now, Rick? I mean, I, 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 I am feeling better. Thank you. Good. For, right. Thank you for asking. Uh, yes. Uh, I've got now we've got a we've got comic relief. We have a little time for a comic relief case. We have about uh, seven or eight minutes. Oh, good. We got a couple cases. Misplaced surgical specimen. The plaintiff, 75, underwent a thyroidectomy, after which the thyroid was sent to the pathology laboratory for examination. About an hour later, the lab reported that the specimen was missing. They couldn't find it. They went back to the operating room. They talked to the transport. They can't find it. Since the specimen could not be tested for cancer, plaintiffs suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and fear of cancer. The jury found in favor of the plaintiff to the tune of two million bucks. Wow. No wow. evidence of cancer in the patient, but be, he said he was so frightened that they've missed cancer. And this is seventy. This is seventy-five-year-old guy. You know, this, this is like a Gomer. You're practicing. <coughs> hey, 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 yeah, hey! Watch yeah. that Gomer stuff there, Chief. Yeah, but uh, when when we think about that, this is the handling of a specimen. Cost two million bucks. It's uh, it's sort of unbelievable. Hey, uh, listen, can I uh, before we wrap up here? Can I give you two uh, journal articles that I think are worth uh, at least making you aware of? Sure. Uh, one of them is entitled "The Covert Administration of Medications: Legal and Ethical Complexities for Healthcare Professionals." Now, do we ever give medications covertly in the emergency department, Gregory? Well, I think it's happened. Yes, we have. Yeah, it, it may have slipped through the cracks. Exactly. Yes, exactly. This is a this is a really great great article. Lots and lots of citations about the ethical issues, the legal issues. Unfortunately, it is uh, written by a Canadian, and most of the quotes with regards to cases are in British and uh, Scottish and Canadian law. It's published in the Journal of Law and Medicine, and it's in the summer issue. Another paper, which was really a very complex paper, I usually like to go over these papers uh, on Risk Management Monthly, but this one is so complex about heuristics and Bayesian and all that other stuff, I, I, right. I thought, I'm not touching that. It's, a, it's entitled, though, Overcoming Diagnostic er uh, Errors in Medical Practice. It's uh, in the uh, Journal of Pediatrics of all places, the June 2017 issue. And uh, if you are a student of this matter, given the fact that malpractice in emergency medicine is usually about misdiagnosis, that uh, this is a detailed article from which you may want to delve. Uh, that's it, Gregory. Well, thank you very much. We ought to do a wine. We got to do a wine. Let's go in uh, a wine there, Chief. We'll do a little wine. Uh, reminding you, Rick, that Martin Luther once said, beer is made by men, wine. By God.
and uh, just just to bug you a little bit, you know, knowing you're the the, the major beer man, uh, we have a spoiler alert. And and uh, La Crema. 2015 Chardonnay. That is Mrs. Bucata's favorite wine. For those of you who don't listen to this program regularly, uh, Russian River Valley um, is going up. Uh, they listed uh, here at 30 bucks a bottle. Now, the good news <laughs> is there's a long-term contract between um, uh, Costco and La Crema. So that I think that the prices have held on uh, on uh, La Crema, and your wife will still be happy. Yeah, a crisis averted. A crisis <laughs> averted. And, and listen, the, I know that I know about Costco and uh, the fact that it's the biggest wine seller in the country. I know that from watching Shark Tank. Yes, where the uh, guy in the middle there, uh, Mr. Wonderful, who's a big winologist. Yes. Uh, basically makes that point over and over and over. He also makes the point that 90% of the wine bought in this country is less than uh, $10 a bottle or $12 a bottle. But I've learned a lot about that watching uh, Shark Tank. Right. All right. So the wine of the of the month we're recommending is Joseph Swan Vineyards. This is 2013 Chardonnay Hawk Hill Vineyard. <laughs> Again, Russian River Valley, and uh, I would uh, I would put this one down as one of the best white wines I have ever had. So uh, there you go, Rick. Hey, listen, there's a, there's our stuff. Yeah, uh, how about if we end on an up note? An up note, okay? I got okay. the uh, I've got the LA Times here business section. Uh, this is a little old now. This is dated uh, August twenty second. Johnson & Johnson hit with big verdict over its talc risk. You think that these malpractice awards that we're talking about here, 20 million, 10 million, 9 million, are, 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 are substantial awards? You ain't heard nothing yet. A woman dying of ovarian cancer is awarded $417 million by an L.A. jury. Yeah, and they're collectible, too. Johnson & Johnson have that kind of cash. Well, obviously, this is just one of a bajillion suits on ovarian cancer that are going to be out there, but it's um, $417 million. I think yeah. it'll probably be appealed. So what you're saying is emergency medicine, as always, is basically chump change uh, compared to the big cases in the country. Well, kind of, kind of, although that, uh, our job is to help the uh, ER physicians and the uh, NPs and PAs stay out of trouble and avoid these 10 and $20 million verdicts. All right. Well, listen, that's it for, uh, for the month of November. Rick, I know you're heading off to Europe to be sort of a continental uh, snob kind of guy. We're really uh, waiting to see what you think of Europe, other than the fact that it's old and decaying. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, we'll be back again for the December risk management monthly. So bye-bye for now. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got, a, I got a, another thing. You know, we do have our PANP board review course coming up at uh, the very beginning of December. I'm going to see you there. If yes. any of you are, are PA or NP and haven't gone to the, uh, original boot camp, we hope to see you there. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have maybe five, 600 people. And uh, it's going to be a party, and Greg's going to be there, and a whole bunch of other people that uh, uh, are uh, emergency medicine luminaries. All right, Greg, thanks for listening to uh, my 
blathering on here. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye-bye. Talk-